If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. This episode of Philosophy for Our Times was recorded live at the Institute of Art and Ideas annual festival, How the Light Gets In. How the Light Gets In is the world's largest philosophy music festival and it takes place in the idyllic setting of Hay on Wye. Early bird tickets have just gone on sale for How the Light Gets In 2018 and we would love for you to join us. For more information and tickets, see the IAI website at iai.tv. Laudanum gave me repose, not sleep. But to you, I believe, know how divine that repose is. What a spot of enchantment. A green spot of fountain and flowers and trees in the very heart of a waste of sands. These are the words of Samuel Taylor Coleridge on the opium alcohol that was a constant source of inspiration for the romantic poets. Is he guilty or not guilty? Is our son? And that was the character Mark, withdrawing from heroin in the film Train Spotting. We've all heard the dangers of addiction to opiates, as well as the horrors of withdrawal. But how much of our knowledge comes from medical science and how much from myth? Here to take us through the mythology of opiates is writer, doctor and psychiatrist, Theodore Dalrymple. Well, it's uh, my contention that everything you think you know about heroin addiction and addiction to other opiates is false. It belongs to the realm of mythology uh, that has been uh, assiduously peddled down the ages so that even doctors who should know better believe the myths. Let me give you an outline of what I think you probably believe about heroin addiction. You probably believe that heroin and other opiates are highly addictive drugs and therefore one has only to take a few doses to be hooked, to use the common term. You probably believe that once someone is hooked, he has to continue to take the drug in large part because of the terrible and indeed dangerous withdrawal effects if he stops taking it. You probably believe that because he has to keep taking it, he is unable to work in a normal way, and because he is unable to work in a normal way, he has to resort to crime to feed his habit. And you probably believe that this situation must continue until such time as he receives uh, assistance, mainly medical assistance, and that without such assistance, he will not stop. 
you probably believe that addiction to heroin and opiates is a bona fide illness, a medical problem in itself. At any rate, this is the official line of the American National Institute of Drug Abuse. Uh, the NIDA states that addiction is a chronic, often relapsing brain disease and nothing much more. Well, I hope that uh, I have characterized what you believe more or less accurately. Even if I have not, I have uh, characterized an important <coughs> current of opinion. For example, the distinguished Guardian journalist, Polly Toynbee, once wrote an article in which she advocated that heroin should be distributed to heroin addicts so that they do not have to burgle and steal. Well, let's examine the tenets of what I'm tempted to call the orthodox view. First, let me make one thing perfectly clear. I believe that addiction actually exists as a physiological entity, and no doctor could believe otherwise or deny it. But physiology is not, by a long shot, the end of the matter. First, let me deal with the addictive properties of heroin. Heroin is a drug that is widely used in our hospitals, and some patients are given it for days at a time, for pain, of course, and become addicted to it in the sense that they suffer withdrawal symptoms when they stop. And I'll deal with the seriousness of these symptoms later. But although I have seen hundreds, if not thousands, of British heroin addicts, I have never met one who started because of genuine medical treatment. The most common explanation offered by a heroin addict, the kind of heroin addict whom I knew by, in many numbers, when he begins to take heroin by injection, is that he fell in with the wrong crowd, a way of putting it that suggests a force of gravity, say, rather than of elective affinity. To this alleged explanation, I would reply that I found it strange that while I met many, many people who fell in with the wrong crowd, I never met any member of the wrong crowd itself. <laughs> Whereupon the addicts like you, one and all, laughed. And just because they were, on the whole, very badly educated didn't mean that they were stupid. Now I come to the matter of withdrawal from heroin and other opiates. It may surprise you to know that from the purely medical point of view, this withdrawal is trivial. Quite unlike withdrawal from alcohol addiction, for example, which is a medical or can be a medical emergency. Oddly enough, the general public has precisely the opposite view. But the evidence is very strong that while there are undoubted physical withdrawal effects from heroin and other opiates, a large component of the withdrawal reaction is the consequence of anticipatory anxiety that the mythology to which I have alluded promotes and increases. In Vienna, an interesting experiment was done in which addicts were withdrawn very quickly by being given a drug that is counteractive to opiates. What was striking about this experiment was the withdrawing addicts expressed seven-eighths of their distress before they were withdrawn. And moreover, the distress that they felt had absolutely no correlation whatever with the symptoms that were objectively observable. In my own hospital, we withdrew many addicts under strict conditions, namely that we would relieve their symptomatic distress with medication but only on objective signs, such as diarrhea or vomiting, that we, the doctors, could observe. In the great majority of cases, 
the patients would ask us three days later when they were going to start their withdrawal and were surprised to learn that they had already gone through it. Where then does the peculiar conception of the severity of withdrawal from heroin or other opiates come from? And I am afraid that it is the triumph of literary or cinematic depiction over rather dull pharmacological fact, a triumph that has occurred even over the medical profession itself. And I well remember as a junior doctor being called casualty to address the most frightful of medical emergencies, an addict who said that he had run out of his supplies. The problem of heroin addiction is thus the problem of misconception, not that of pharmacology. It is not true that addicts are incapable of working. In the 1920s and 30s in the United States, many morphine addicts uh, continued to work normally. And many addicts, even now, do not break the law other than, of course, by obtaining heroin and so forth. The life of a heroin addict is, in fact, a very busy one. I remember one group of them who went out to what they called work every day, that is to say, shoplifting. Moreover, they had to secure their heroin supplies as well, in addition to going out shoplifting. One addict explained to me the difference between what he called your workers and your earners. Your workers uh, go out to work just before nine and they start coming home at five, whereas your earners go out at about the same time and come back about the same time, but they obtain their money uh, by theft and robbery. The relationship between crime and heroin addiction, I hope you will now not be surprised to learn, is often oversimplified. Professor Davis found some years ago that there was no correlation between the amount of crime addicts committed and the amount of heroin that they took. I discovered, or rather confirmed what others had found, that the great majority of heroin addicts who were imprisoned for crimes other than uh, possession, incidentally, had extensive criminal records before they ever took heroin. In fact, I worked out that they had committed between 50 and 200 crimes before they ever took heroin. In other words, insofar as there was a causative relationship between criminality and heroin addiction, it was that criminality caused the addiction rather than addiction caused the criminality. Though more probably what causes a young person to be attracted to crime also attracted him to heroin addiction and the life surrounding it. We come now to the necessity for treatment. Two great historical experiences shed some light on this. The first was in China after the revolution. Mao Zedong was undoubtedly the greatest drug therapist of all time. He threatened to execute opium addicts if they did not abstain, usually after the most minimal assistance. And lo and behold, 20 million hitherto intractable addicts gave up because when Mao threatened to shoot you, you tended to believe him. Now, do not uh, misunderstand me. I'm not advocating Mao's policy. I am uh, pointing out, however, that Mao understood what the National Institute of Drug Abuse in uh, Washington does not understand, namely that there is a category difference between addiction to opiates and, shall we say, multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's disease. If Mao had threatened to shoot anyone who developed esophageal cancer, say, it would have made no sense. But it did make sense 
even if it was the wrong thing to do, to threaten to shoot opium addicts. The second historical experience I want to mention is that of American soldiers in Vietnam. Though many people mention in passing the researchers of Lee Robbins, they rarely seem to see the significance of them. She discovered that about 40% of American soldiers serving in Vietnam took heroin, and of those, half, that is to say 20% of the entire population, were physically addicted to heroin. Within a short time of returning home, however, the vast majority of them gave up, mostly without any assistance, even to withdraw. In a follow-up of eight years, only a very small percentage of them had taken heroin, and of those, the vast majority took it for only a very short time, stopping again almost as soon as they started. I come now to the actual treatment given to addicts, which in practice usually consists of giving the addict a substitute drug such as methadone or buprenorphine. However, in some places, such as Dublin, more people die of the substitute treatment than of the original so-called condition. In Britain, about a third to a half as many people die of methadone overdoses as of heroin overdoses. I come uh, now briefly to the reasons why so false a view of heroin addiction in particular and addiction in general has prevailed. There are, in my uh, opinion, two main reasons, one historical and the other a matter of vested interest. I lay the origin of the false view at the door of the English romantics of the first two decades of the 19th century, in particular De Quincey and Coleridge. They were both great writers, of course, uh, but they were also great self-dramatists, and in particular Coleridge was a uh, liar of absolutely world class. <laughs> when, when it comes uh, to the famous man from Porlock who interrupted Coleridge's opium reverie, which supposedly resulted in the unfinished poem Kubla Khan, Coleridge was lying. There is no other explanation of what he wrote. And furthermore, I once counted 17 exclamation marks in a single one of his sentences about his own suffering. <laughs> and this, it seemed to me, was not the punctuation of a man intent on telling the plain, unvarnished truth about himself. Though I admit that that's not um, scientific evidence. In fact, I think he was more of an alcohol addict than an opium addict, and that the poem The Pains of Sleep, for example, describes much more the product of an alcohol-disturbed uh, night than opium dreams. At least it certainly corresponds with my alcohol-disturbed uh, nights. <laughs> As for uh, De Quincey, in many ways he was an attractive character, but it was he who first insinuated into the world that there were enormous philosophical benefits from taking opium. One could derive insights from taking it. But that the price to pay for them was a titanic, almost superhuman struggle to abjure the drug, in his case, laudanum, which was tincture of opium in alcohol. His misconceptions, often magnified and exaggerated yet further, 
run like a golden thread through literature. In fact, there's a kind of apostolic succession, if you like, of untruths from Baudelaire to Bulgakov and Léon Daudet, the last two were doctors, incidentally, to William S. Burroughs and Irving Walsh, uh, not excluding modern children's books. It, as you know, it's never too soon to mislead children. The uh, second reason for the misconception is the dialectical relationship between the research establishment, the treatment bureaucracy, if I may so put it, and the addicts themselves. During Nixon's presidency, the head of the NIDA told Congress that addiction was a purely physiological phenomenon, not because he believed it was true, he didn't believe it was true, in fact he knew it was false, but because that was the only way to winkle research monies out of Congress. If he had told Congress that it was a multidimensional problem, psychological, economic, sociological, educational, spiritual, with an element of uh, physiology thrown in, Congress would have told him just to go away. <laughs> America, being the land of can-do, wanted a simple or at least a clear technical solution. But the problem is that the waters of addiction are intrinsically muddy. The technocratic view of the problem was just what a bureaucracy needed. Furthermore, it suited many addicts because henceforth they could now see the problem as being one that other people could and had the duty to solve for them. I've heard many an addict say, I would give up if I got the help. I've heard it hundreds of times. By help, he meant the procedure or treatment that would stop him from taking drugs without any contribution from his own determination. He wanted addiction to be cut out like an inflamed appendix, at the same time knowing that this was completely unrealistic. The technocratic view gave him license, or at least a justification, for continuing to do what he already wanted or was determined to do. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's now uh, customary, indeed obligatory, in medical conferences for a speaker to lay down the so-called learning objectives for his audience, who then have to mark on a paper uh, whether he has succeeded in imparting to them the things they're supposed to learn. Uh, my ob objective today has been more modest than to give you something, a little something, as Pooh Bear would have put it, uh, to, th uh, to think about. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this live podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. So, did you once believe in the mythology of opium and has Theodore Dalrymple made you rethink your position? Let us know what you think by tweeting at iai underscore tv with the hashtag romancingopiates. <laughs>